You're listening to No Lies Radio, coming to you 24-7 from the San Francisco Bay Area, north of Berkeley. Your radio station for the truth, peace, justice, freedom, and more power to the people. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Conspiracy Conference. And our next speaker is Mr. Richard Nolan. And Richard will be presenting his lecture, UFOs and 9-11, Understanding the Two Greatest Conspiracy Theories of Our Time. A little background about Richard. Uh, He has a BA and an MA in history with interest in the Cold War, Soviet history, and international diplomacy. In 2000, he published what is to be the first of two parts, UFOs and a National Security State. He has been on many radio and TV programs, including Coast to Coast and Sci-Fi Investigates and for the Sci-Fi Channel. Richard has been a featured speaker at many international conferences, local conferences, and plus he's a great guy. He has published numerous articles on anomalous phenomena, science, and, and the intelligence community. In 2003, he was a founding member of the Science and Society magazine, Phenomena. In his lecture, uh, UFOs and 9-11, he will be focusing on, on this. Uh, most UFO research, researchers typically ignore the implications of 9-11, and most 9-11 researchers run fast and far out, far from UFO believers. Many who believe in one don't believe in the other. Richard argues that both conspiracies are fundamentally true. That is, there is a significant historical covert footprint of covering up of UFO reality and that 9-11 was an inside job. Is there a relationship between these two major conspiracies? Richard will argue that there is, starting with how both have helped to kill the traditional American Republic. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Richard Dolan. Thank you so very much, Ruben. It is a great, great pleasure to be here at this conference. Thank you all for showing up. Uh, I would like to thank Brian Hall for uh, getting my participation in this conference. I'd like to thank Ruben and everybody else involved in organizing this conference, which I think has just been fabulous. I've spoken at uh, more UFO conferences than I can remember. I have never spoken at a conspiracy conference. Now, when I go to a UFO conference, I'm typically known as one of the main uh, conspiracy guys. But when I come here, I feel like uh, I just got out of the minor leagues and I'm having my cup of coffee in the majors. UFO conferences are filled with some very uh, engaging and brilliant people, very passionate people. Uh, You get that here at this conference with one difference, which is I think the people who attend conspiracy conference uh, tend to be a little more <clears throat> pissed off about things than your UFO people. I can't say I would find fault with that position. Um, yeah, it's an interesting thing. Let me, um, one, one thing I just want to mention for any of you who, who may be following my own work, uh, as Ruben pointed out, I, I, my background really is, is more academic than anything else. I was a PhD student, actually, in history at the University of Rochester many years ago when I still thought I wanted to feed the machine. And, uh, and then I got the UFO bug, 93, uh, 94. Uh, I'll never forget this. I was with my wife in a bookstore, and I saw a copy of Timothy Good's very excellent book called Above Top Secret, the worldwide UFO cover-up. And I thought, wow, 
I'm studying Harry Truman and the birth of the CIA and the Cold War, thinking at that time that I was a pretty cutting-edge sort of guy. And here's a book that's got names of all the people that I'd been studying, departments that I'd been studying, and he's got them in his UFO cover-up context. And I thought, you know, is there... We've all had this question uh, before we achieved our enlightenment into the world of conspiracies. We've all wondered, I wonder if there's something to this. And so I thought I would take uh, two or three months out of my life to look into this issue since I was studying the, the period of the early Cold War formally academic, academically. And, um, and that was it. I've never left. Um, I started out so conservatively thinking, I just want to know one thing. Was not our UFOs real? I just wanted to know, is this a topic that our national security community has actually truly taken seriously? And if they ever did, why have I not read about it in any academic history book, even if it was a mistake? Why would it have been expunged? Would it not be interesting to rewind the clock and sit in the office of some three-star general who's actually worried about airspace violations by unknown objects? Of course, how could that not be interesting? And yet it, it has been absent, of course, from our official history. So that was my, my entry point into that topic. What I found is that you, it, you know, it's like going to the ocean and you want to stick your little foot in. Well, you can try that for a little while, but ultimately you're going to go for a swim. And uh, to use a different analogy, um, most of us are, I, I would like to think, familiar with the movie The Matrix, where Neo takes that red pill and then the actual reality is exposed to him. Would that life were so simple as to take a single red pill? What I find is that I've probably taken about 20 red pills over the last 15 years and there's just more to go. Every time I think I've you know, ripped open the layer of BS that has been enveloping me, I think, oh, here's reality. And then I go for another year and then suddenly I realize this isn't really quite sufficient either and you keep ripping away. And um, as a result, I've uh, become very interested in how it is that the UFO topic could be covered up. I will argue exactly uh, why I, and how I think that's happened. Along the way came 9-11. Uh, just to let you know by bit of background, I'm from the New York City area. My dad was a New York City cop uh, who had retired from the police force and then worked as a fire safety director at the World Trade Center for seven years. I spent seven years of discussions with my father, just so happened, about fire safety and evacuation problems associated with the World Trade Center complex, which he knew uh, extremely well. My dad had the day off. He had Tuesdays off. He shared his job with a very nice man that I had the pleasure to meet on one occasion who was killed that day. And I think, like a lot of people, I was so traumatized by 9-11 that I, I, I wouldn't look at it for a good year. My wife, let me give her credit, was onto it from day one. Day one, that night, she said to me, I, I have this feeling that the president knows and he's involved. And, and I, Mr. Conspiracy, so I thought, I said, well, now, now, come on, that's kind of silly. I did. People started writing to me, though, because I write about the UFO cover-up, and they'd say, Rich, you have to look at 9-11. And... Um, and I wasn't against any idea that this was a cover-up. I just, I just said, well, look, I'm, I'm doing other things. I'll, I'll get to it when I get to it. Then I remembered I read Dave Ray, David Ray Griffin's book, uh, The New Pearl Harbor, whenever it came out, and it blew me away. 
Uh, that book really turned my head. It was, it was a revolution in my life, and I thought, this guy, he's onto it. And, and then I became acquainted with uh, much of the 9-11 literature and analysis. So um, 9-11, of course, is America's Reichstag fire. But let me come back to that in a minute. First, I want to uh, talk about a little bit about the, um, the fact that researchers, as I put it, don't always play nice. All that means is that we don't always listen to each other. And in the UFO field, um, for most of the history of UFO research, you find it to be a fairly apolitical thing. Really. I mean, now, there are UFO researchers who get into the conspiracy cover-up thing. I'm one. You go back through history, there's been a few. But the dominant uh, strain of UFO research is, uh, I think, best characterized by the phrase scientific ufology. So there's groups like MUFON and Mutual, Mutual New UFO Network and, and other groups that have tried to, uh, for the most part, stay kind of politically detached after all, people who believe in UFOs come of all political persuasions, many of them very politically conservative. And so even to talk about a cover-up was, was sometimes a difficult thing to do. And especially going back, you know, way back into the 1950s when even the most uh, conspiracy-oriented UFO researchers, people like uh, Major Donald Kehoe, were still deeply patriotic Americans who believed in their system of government. And they, they didn't believe in things like uh, the Illuminati or the Bilderbergers or talk about the Council on Foreign Relations or other kinds of conspiracies. They were pretty straightforward in their beliefs. So UFO research, in other words, has a very long history of, of being apolitical. Now, after Watergate, after the passage of the Freedom of Information Act, and once uh, a number of these documents came out that kind of proved a cover-up, that started to change a little bit, but only... only um, with a lot of resistance. And to this day, I would say the dominant strain of UFO research does not really deal with uh, secret government-type activities. It, it's changing a bit, but there's still a, a very, very significant old guard that just will not look at this. And uh, a couple of years ago, I've, I wrote a piece on 9-11 uh, on my website called UFO Secrecy and the Death of the American Republic, and it deals with 9-11 as well as UFOs. And uh, the crap that I took from old, from other researchers just reinforced that uh, there's just a, a great deal of pig-headedness and um, you know, unwillingness for people to look beyond the confines of their own little discipline. Then you get into the 9/11 researchers, and and you know, frankly, in their defense, I don't blame them for this, but I see much of the same thing in regarding to a basic unwillingness to look at uh, the topic that I look at, which is UFOs. Now, I understand this. Um, I mean, when you're trying to carry the world on your shoulders and to fight this incredible fight, and this is an, such an important issue to broach, and you're dealing with a mainstream media that already thinks you're wacko, uh, it doesn't really help to take on another issue that also will make you be seen as wacko. And so... Um, it's totally understandable for any 9-11 researcher who's got a public perspective on this and has written to, to stay away from the UFO topic. That, that's fine. But what I would suggest is on a, a private basis, um, it, I have become convinced that both of these theories are fundamentally true. And if you have one big truth and you have another big truth, chances are there may be an overlap 
in various places, and it, I think it helps us to understand the bigger picture when we start looking at these. I have a little comment on the Kennedy assassination research in my slide there, and it's the same thing. Uh, you know, Jim Mars is the one guy I think that I, I know of. I, I don't know if there's anybody else other than Jim who's actually written books on all three of these topics. Good for Jim. Thank you, Jim. Jim is a role model for me and I think for many other researchers. Every time I watch Jim speak, by the way, I think, my God, how many dots is this guy going to connect? But then he manages to do it. So Now, um, the, the reason that we don't all listen to each other's research is that people have honest disagreements. That's, that's one thing. Um, the tendency of any researcher is to squirrel away into their little private Idaho and to do their thing and then to assume that their, their topic is the topic and is the defining you know, topic of their generation. We're all, we all tend to be guilty of that. Um, and then you have COINTEL prototype operations. Thank God we had Joyce Riley speak earlier today. And she talked quite a bit about COINTELPRO. I thought Joyce was absolutely magnificent and a true American hero. Um, yes, please. She deserves all of your applause. COINTELPRO is not only real historically, it is real today. How could any national security apparatus leave that type of thing alone when it's been shown to be so amazingly effective? The problem that we have today is in, unlike in the 70s when our nation had its great moment of being able to peek a little bit behind the closed door of secrecy. After all, it was after Watergate, it was after Vietnam. We're not in that situation anymore, at least right now. And so to find out about current COINTELPRO type operations is very, very difficult to get surefire documentation, and yet we know it's out there. It looks like it, smells like it, tastes like it, you know it is. Now, my plan for today, I've actually got five parts of my presentation. I don't want to make this too complex. But first of all, because this is not a typical uh, type of venue that I speak at, in other words, this is a much more broad thing than simply UFOs, right? I want to give a brief documentary bit of evidence as to why UFOs do matter. I suspect there are some of you out there who may need to be convinced. I don't know. Part two is how um, I analyze how the elite have dealt with the ET UFO phenomenon since they've encountered it. The third part is how UFO secrecy has damaged the American and global political system, or how sometimes, as I put it, it has been one of several knives in the back of the American Republic. Part four is my take on how 9-11 ties into the larger picture. And then the final is uh, what I've called the revolution of truth, what, what will happen, not if, but when the truths on these matters come out. So let me keep moving here. One thing that we can say about the history of the UFO phenomenon is that when you simply look at the open literature, that is stuff you, don't, you can't argue about, proven documents obtained through National Archive sources, is that the UFO phenomenon has received serious military attention from the beginning, that is, from the 1940s, that we've been able to track without a question. And not just 
that they're interested, but that these sightings and the encounters with these objects that are not supposed to exist have been of a very provocative, sometimes confrontational nature. It's an important point to emphasize because there are a number of people who continue to maintain that all UFOs are terrestrial and that they are of a uh, revolutionary breakthrough that's been kept secret. Now, I, I don't necessarily argue against this 100%, but one has to take into consideration the fact that, that there is some kind of trouble in paradise here, that whoever they are, they are really annoying every major military in the world. There has been a history of attempted interceptions and even attempted shootdowns of UFOs. I will describe a couple of those to you. So as I just mentioned, whatever else is happening, these developments show that something is not quite right in the relationships between us and them, whoever them happen to be. I was asked a couple of years ago to uh, <clears throat> describe what I felt were some of the best UFO documents, and I thought about it. And I, I have a list of about 15 or so, and I'm just going to mention them very briefly. The 1947 Twining Memo, General Nathan Twining was head of Air Material Command at that time and was asked by another general, keep in mind the flying saucer phenomenon was kind of a new thing, publicly. This general wrote to Twining and said, essentially, do I need to do anything about these flying saucers? Is this something that we did? Twining, who later became chief of staff of the U.S. Air Force, wrote back and said, uh, according to the intelligence that we've been receiving through various channels, this phenomenon is real, not visionary or fictitious. These are famous words now amongst researchers in my field. And then described the characteristics of the objects, domed on top, flat on bottom, evasive maneuvers when sighted, silent, or typically silent, outperforming our own aircraft, and so on and so on. That's 1947. So that's interesting by itself. There's a very interesting memo from 1949 by the FBI describing this topic as top secret. Not secret, not confidential, not restricted, but top secret. It's important because when you look at the documents that we've obtained through the National Archives, almost none of them have been top secret. They've all been of lower levels of classification. We've gotten a couple of top secret documents, and they're all almost totally redacted, NSA documents. It's an amazing document from 1950 describing airspace violations over the Hanford Atomic Energy Commission facility, in which anti-aircraft battalions were alerted, jets were scrambled, all these agencies brought out. They didn't know what the things were those round objects hanging out overhead. A 1952 memo to the director of the CIA stating that the sightings of these objects at such altitudes and at such speeds are not attributable to known aircraft or natural phenomena. You might as well just say, boss, we're being invaded, but of course this is a memo to the director of the CIA. You don't just say such things like that. Another interesting memo coming from Oak Ridge dealing with airspace violations there describing a Jets chasing, shooting across the sky, and then this black object coming out of a cloud, zipping across the sky, stopping, joined by two other similar objects, and then they take off at tremendous speed, all described by an Oak Ridge engineer. An emergency memo from Maxwell Air Force Base, another, another violation of airspace that was not explained, that got a lot of people worked up. And another one from the 1955 from Pepperell Air Force Base, an incredible radar visual tracking, Mine at Air Force Base describing a landing of a UFO when the strike team went out to check it out. All their electronic and communication systems went offline. Then the object is shot off, according to witnesses. 
1967 was uh, one of the more extraordinary events in the history of this, these encounters in which uh, at two locations at Malmstrom Air Force Base, and this is where they had ICBMs, objects were seen hovering overhead at the same time that below ground uh, over 20 missiles went offline. Boeing, which manufactured those missiles, was not able to find out why this happened. But you got this red glowing thing overhead being described by the above-ground airmen at the same time. An interesting memo from 1969 by General Carol Bollander, who, uh, after they closed down Project Blue Book, which was, of course, the Air Force's main PR outlet to all of this, Bollander said, well, you know, closing Blue Book wasn't that big a deal because uh, any UFO report that has national security implications goes through other channels anyway. That's, that is proof if you needed it, that Blue Book was simply a public relations exercise. In 1975, this nation experienced a wave of utterly awesome and inexplicable violations of airspace along the northern U.S. border and also into Canada, many of them dealing with SAC bases, Strategic Air Command, objects which to this day have not been identified, but we have ample, overwhelming documentation on their reality. Uh, hanging out over nuclear weapons, uh, being chased, no attempt to intercept these. Um, Occasionally described as helicopter-like, except they didn't make any noise. And then they had the ability to uh, move rather rapidly, faster than any helicopter. 1976, possibly the most extraordinary documented UFO encounter, took place by the Iranian Air Force, and was well documented in four pages of a U.S. Defense Intelligence Agency memo, memo which went to the White House, went to the Secretary of State, Henry Kissinger, and uh, all around the block. And in this instance, you had two Iranian F-4s, which encountered a a UFO over Tehran separately. As each one got to within 25 nautical, nautical miles, all of their electronic and communication systems went offline. And in one instance, the object detached a smaller object, which went on an intercept course of one of the F-4s. The F-4 pilot tries to pull away with a tight, tight, tight curve. This little object turned inside his own arc, and then, according to the memo, rejoined the mother craft for a perfect rejoin. Now, that's something we made. That's kind of nifty. An interesting uh, memo from the State Department in 1978 describing the crash of a very, very unusual object in Bolivia. And then a rather famous memo uh, dealing the the infamous Rendlesham landing case in Britain. Uh, this deputy base commander of, of, that, of uh, the um, Bentwaters facility where a U.S. soldier was stationed, Char- Charles Halt, wrote a very detailed memo about this. We have very good documentation on that. And then uh, in 1990, more documentation on the infamous Belgian triangle. I think that's a pretty good short list. Uh, I'm sure it can be improved on, but I think it's a good starting point. What I would say to you is if you remain really skeptical that there's anything to this, well, then read these documents. They're all available freely on the web at this point. It's not that hard to find them. Now, these, I'm not going to go through all of these encounters, but through the 70s and 80s, uh, in my subsequent research um, for my next volume of UFOs in a National Security State, which will be out this year, there's a lot, you know, the encounters just go and go and go and go. They don't stop. 
And it's not just U.S. military that's chasing these things down. One of, one of the most interesting cases on this uh, slide, in my opinion, is the bottom one, December 1978, where two Chilean F-5s were sent to square off, as they put it, with an enormous UFO. Uh, one of those pilots later became a general in the Chilean Air Force and has spoken at great length about this. The object that they encountered was humongous, according to all of the uh, accounts. Through the 1980s, more of the same. Um, in fact, uh, I think, again, one of the most interesting encounters of that decade was also in South America, this one in Peru in 1980. Two days in a row, Peruvian Air Force, and this is in a U.S. Defense Intelligence Agency uh, document, uh, this round UFO is hovering near the airfield. The commander of the base scrambled an Su-22 aircraft to intercept the object. The pilot fired on the object. And uh, according to the document, it had no effect, no damage. The pilot then went on an intercept to try to chase this thing down. The object just went, shoo, took right off. The pilot had no chance of catching up with it. The following day, the same event occurred, except that this time the pilot did not fire. I spoke a little uh, while ago with Antonio Huneas, a Ch uh, Chilean UFO researcher, good guy. Antonio said, yes, I talked to, uh, I interviewed the commander of that base, and he said that uh, the second day he decided not to fire the missile because the first one was so damned expensive and it had no effect. He said it was going to blow his budget all to hell. He said, why bother? I thought, oh, yeah, it makes sense. Uh, Soviet Union had numerous encounters. You know, throughout most of the Cold War, we really were not truly aware of this because, well, there was this little thing called the Cold War, and we didn't know about it all. When the Soviet Union was in a state of collapse during uh, 1989, 1990, we had a moment where a lot of information came out. At that time, uh, the Deputy Minister of Defense, Ivan Tretyak, in 1990, said there were 40 cases he knew of where Soviet jets encountered UFOs. Initially, they were commanded to intercept, shoot these things, but they lost too many pilots and then changed their, their uh, policy to uh, just stay the heck away from these things. Uh, there was a Colonel Boris Sokolov who also confirmed thousands, as he said, of Soviet cases during the 1980s where Soviet jet pilots encountered UFOs. Through the 1990s in our own country, there are many, many more such cases. We don't all have uh, formal government documentation on them. FOYA has had its ups and downs. FOYA was largely gutted by an executive order by Pr President Reagan in 1981, 82, excuse me. And it's, um, it's very difficult these days to yank these cases out of government archives. But there are cases through the 90s, these are just two examples, one in Georgia, one in Evansville, Indiana, where witnesses saw jets chasing these very, very bizarre objects across the sky. In one case, an F-4 exploding over Georgia in the process of doing this. There's a, a much more well-known case that took place just five or six years ago in D.C., uh, outside the capital, I should say, in a, over a town of Waldorf, Maryland, suburb in which a number of individuals saw at 1.30 in the morning F-16s chasing after this bluish object across the sky. The object totally outperformed the F-16s. I received an email just recently from a gentleman who's active duty U.S. Navy, uh, told me of an account in December of 05. Now, I, I will say to you, I haven't uh, followed up on this yet, but I have uh, avenues to follow up, and I intend to do so. This has just come to me. Private email from uh, an operations specialist who told me uh, 
He was aboard the USS Nimitz, 100 miles off the coast of California. Just This is two years ago. And uh, as an operations specialist, he told me his job was to monitor the radar on the ship. They picked up strange blips that were zigzagging in the direction of their, of their uh, ship. The pilot was sent to investigate. Came back and said, oh my God, yes, I saw this thing. It was cigar-shaped, buzzed by my my uh, plane several times and then shot up faster in the sky than anything I've ever seen. He shot video of this object. The uh, gentleman who emailed me told me that some organization, he didn't know who, was flown in aboard the, uh, the ship. Now, they were, doing, uh, they, they were doing flight operations. I mean, they were in the middle of doing important things. This un unknown group comes over 100 miles off coast, debriefs everyone involved, takes the video. So um, there was, uh, apparently this was reported in the news, so I'm going to try to follow up on it. More recently in Stephenville, Texas, I think many of you have probably heard of this, um, upwards of 50 people saw this enormous object. One, one person described it as a flying Walmart. <laughs> Let's just pray to God that's not true. I mean, if Walmart's flying now, we're, you know, no escaping them chased by a bunch of F-16s that, again, one, once again, could not keep up with this thing. And, you know, I'd hate to be the Air Force public relations guy to have to deal with this because uh, who's going to believe him? So the first thing he said was, well, these people were obviously mistaken. They saw the, uh, this large commercial airliner probably reflecting in an odd way, and who knows. So everyone <laughs> interviewed said, are you insane? I mean, you know, some of the witnesses saw this thing really up close and personal. And... Uh, what I believe was going to happen, I'm not sure, but I'm pretty darn sure, is that it was going to come out that there were F-16s in the area because the Air Force then said, oh, well, <clears throat> yeah, we did have a couple of F-16s in that area on training missions. So they did corroborate that part of it. They, didn't, they haven't yet corroborated the flying Walmart, but we'll see. So summary up till now. This is just the... Uh, there's... I mean, I've given you just a brief glimmer, really, of the documentation of military interest in UFOs. There's certainly much more than this. For our purposes, it'll have to be enough. Many of these encounters show us chasing them. Maybe we can call it a silent Cold War. I want to move on to the next section, dealing with this. Because it's one thing, you know, from our perspective as essential outsiders looking at this and seeing that there's something going on, but what, what's been going on behind the scenes? This here is a scene from the, uh, the really kind of cool movie from 1953, War of the Worlds. And in fact, uh, if you notice in the center there, there's a journalist interviewing a, a colonel. And if you remember this now, this is where an object has come down in California. This is adapted, of course, from H.G. Uh, Wells. So the thing slams down, and this is before the object comes out and blasts everyone in the kingdom come. So the journalist, the, the media is there. The media is there, and this guy is right in the grill of this colonel. He says, so, colonel, what do you think this is? Men from Mars? And uh, the colonel, you can see this happening, can't you? Sure. Says, well, it, it may be. We have to find out. Now, the reason that's so interesting to me is that this is made in 1953. This is America, America's image of itself, which was that if something big goes down, literally, our media will be there to report it to us. And here, here he is on the bottom there. 
he's looking at the craft as, or the object now is it's about to kill people. And, and right next to him is the older brother of Gomer Pyle, if you notice. That guy down there. Does he look like that? So, so this is what we tell ourselves. That we have this watchdog media, not lapdog media, watchdog media. And they're going to keep an eye out for us. Well, it's obviously. That's our propaganda. What we do know is behind the scenes that there is very good, let's say, testimony dealing with the reality of crash retrievals and study. That is that objects have gone down. Military personnel have recovered them. How do we, why do we believe this? We believe it on the testimony of some of these individuals that I have up on screen. There's quite, quite a few more who have talked at length about this. Uh, I'll focus on one or two of them. Leonard Stringfield, a longtime UFO researcher, no longer with us. I never had the pleasure to meet him. Former Air Force, when uh, in the late 70s wrote a book called Situation Red, which dealt briefly with crash retrieval themes. As a result of that, and also because it was the Carter years when people actually had this idea that Jimmy Carter was going to come out with UFOs, people started contacting Stringfield with stories. My uh, you know, assignment for a little while was at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, and I saw these bodies, alien bodies in cold storage. Or my husband, who, who recently died, told me that he, on one occasion he was assigned to guard a crashed disc and, and, and things like this. Stringfield collected dozens and then scores of such stories. He, he couldn't confirm them all, and probably some of them are certainly not true, but he was able to do investigation of a large number of them. One of them was a doctor who told him at length and in detail about how he studied the body of a dead alien. This doctor was uh, then practicing in the Northeast. Stringfield met with him many times, checked him out. Stringfield was no dummy. He certainly acknowledged that he might have been fooled and played, but it uh, didn't look like it in his opinion, nor in mine. There's another interesting story dealing with a Canadian uh, government employee, Wilbert Smith. Some of you may know this story. Back in 1950, Smith was interested in UFOs, but he was on assignment at the U.S. Embassy at the time, uh, or at the Canadian Embassy in Washington, excuse me, and uh, wrote back to his own government and said that he made discreet inquiries through the Canadian Embassy staff in Washington who were able to obtain from me the following information. The matter, that is UFOs, is the most highly classified subject in the United States, rating higher than the H-bomb. Two, flying saucers exist. Three, their modus operandi is unknown, but concentrated effort is being made by a small group of scientists headed by Dr. Vannevar Bush. D, the entire matter is considered by the U.S. authorities to be of tremendous significance. Now, the, mem- the uh, memo, that, the type memo that Smith had written was uh, obtained through uh, in the Freedom of Information Act era uh, in the late... 70s. Uh, after Smith died, though, his papers were being researched by a gentleman named Arthur Bray, Canadian researcher. And Bray found these handwritten manuscripts down, you can see there. And those manuscripts describe Smith's interview with a specific American scientist who gave him this information. Ah, now that's interesting because the memo doesn't give any names. Well, one of the names was Dr. Robert Sarbacher. Smith was dead, but Sarbacher was alive. A couple of researchers, most prominently William Steinman, who's still around, uh, 
not active researchers, Stan Friedman also and a few others, found Sarbacher and interviewed him. Sarbacher, in writing to Steinman in 1983, wrote a, a two-page, single-space typed letter admitting that, yes, he did meet with Wilbert Smith in 1950, and yes, they did talk about this. Sarbacher, for whatever reasons, was very forthcoming about this. He died shortly after this. He said, John von Neumann was involved. That is one of the greatest mathematical minds of the century. Dr. Vannevar Bush was involved. Bush, of course, not related to the current Bush people that we are also familiar with. But Vannevar Bush is probably America's top power scientist of the 1940s. And he said, I think Dr. Robert Oppenheimer also. About the only thing I can remember at this time, wrote Sarbacher, is that certain materials reported to have come from flying saucer crashes were extremely light and very tough. I am sure our laboratories analyzed them very carefully. There were reports that instruments or people operating these machines were also of very light weight. I remember in talking with some of the people at the office that I got the impression these aliens were constructed like certain insects. Quite interesting indeed. Again, uh, my next book, which will be out, as I said, later this year, will have a great deal of this type of topic covered, I think, in pretty good detail. Many, many leaks. Many, many leaks. Now, what I would like to add is, you know, you get a UFO, and you can do one of two things. You can sit on your hands and look at it, or you can try to study it and, and make things happen with it. And I think the latter case is what we've been doing. I think that there's um, a very good possibility that we let's say likelihood that we have our own UFOs and very good likelihood of breakthroughs. Now whether those breakthroughs have come from actively studying these objects or homegrown technology, hard for me to say. I think probably what's very likely is that when you acquire an object that has certain capabilities, that itself is one of the key breakthroughs when you realize something is possible. And I think that that is what can encourage you to follow research into that direction. And I suspect that that's a big part of it. Um, <clears throat> And I'm going to briefly only describe why I think the technological breakthroughs have been made. I'm, I'll refer to one aerospace journalist, James Goodall. Long before Bob Lazar made the scene and talked about the uh, flying saucer that he saw at S4, James Goodall was already working through the maze, through the labyrinth of the black world. Now, Goodall was a very mainstream kind of guy. He wrote for Jane's, uh, wrote for Aviation Weekly, Space Technology, and other major aerospace organ uh, publications during the 80s and 90s conducted many, many inter interviews with Groom Lake and Area 51 people, concluded that there were at least eight black programs flying out of Groom Lake, including a silent flying triangle, describing unconventional technologies that were in use. He spoke to one contact in particular with 12 years' experience at Groom. Goodall said, do, you, you know, do UFOs exist? The guy said, absolutely, positively they exist. Would you expand on this? And the guy said, no, thank you. Another sourcer in 1985 said, look, we have things out there that are literally out of this world, better than Star Trek or anything you can see in the movies. Could you expand on this, asked Goodall? And the guy said, no, thank you. Uh, now, a claim is not the same thing as proof, but there's a lot of these claims. Uh, they come through people who are able certainly to talk the right talk and certainly sound persuasive. This photograph on your left, as you look at it, is a photograph taken by a fellow named Gary Schultz 
after Bob Lazar started doing the radio circuit out there, he talked about these objects flying around Area 51. Gary Schultz went out with his long chair, had a couple of beers, took a camera, and took this picture. Now, presumably that's something we made. I showed these two other UFOs on the right just, uh, just to show a very similar kind of design. The Nellis UFO may not be truly a UFO. That's probably very homegrown. You can find this on Google Videos. A gentleman outside who's showing clips of it over and over again. You can go check it out. There's some good information on it. This object uh, was filmed inside uh, Nellis testing range, leaked to hard copy in early 1995. It's been analyzed by a couple of people uh, because it has you know, data readouts on the top of it, as you can see there, giving you different forms of information. Uh, it seems to be about 15 feet wide, about 10 feet high or so. One of the interesting things about it is that the speed variation is really quite tremendous from about 15 or so miles per hour to upwards of 500 all within a couple of minutes, making a right angle turn at about 140 miles per hour, apparently. So that's kind of neat. And that's, you know, now it's, we're getting into 14, 15 years after the fact, and officially these things don't exist, but they do exist. I'm trying to keep the pace here rapid enough so we don't get bogged down. What is the program about that? But the program, in other words, the the crash retrieval program. Well, one thing, it's about making UFOs. I think that's pretty clear. Another thing is that I think it's about studying alien bodies and conducting biotech research. I unfortunately won't be getting into that too much in too much detail here, but I will tell you that uh, my own navigation through this world has uh, bumped me into a couple of scientists who I think have um, sufficient clearance to be able to tell me what they did. Everything's off the record, always off the record. But uh, one individual who is uh, within his field quite famous told me point blank that he knows, not speculation, but on a factual basis at a deep, 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 deeply compartmented levels, that there are scientists who are studying at least one alien body that he knew about. Uh, I think the program is also about conducting a secret space program. Toward that end, I, I would encourage you, there's a number of very, very good documentaries and research done on this. Uh, one website that um, I think you would do well to check out is called projectprove.com. This is a website. It's still up. It was run by the, the late Jeff Challender. Uh, Jeff was a man who dedicated himself to pulling down video from NASA, Soviet, Chinese, European Space Station and putting them on his site. As I say, the site's still up. I don't know for how much longer it will be up. Uh, Jeff, Jeff was great because he didn't just blindly say, oh yeah, that's a UFO, and this is a UFO, and that's a UFO. I think he had a very, very high-level critical acumen. But there's some weird, really bizarre stuff out orbiting this Earth. Objects doing U-turns. As, as far, That's what it looks like to me, in some cases. There's a Footage uh, from uh, summer of 2005 showing an object that looked for every, every way that I look at it, it looks like it's doing a U-turn. And many, many other bizarre things that don't have a ready explanation. Now, either that's us or that's not us. Either way, it's ample evidence, I think, to show that there would be a covert space program in effect. Because if they have, they being, let's say, presumed extraterrestrials have stuff out there doing bizarre maneuvers, 
you would think that there would be a covert operation to go in and check it out without the public knowing about it. I think the program is also about using free money, black budget money, to conduct research and provide security on that research. One of my sources said to me that, in fact, it's very expensive and that the security on this is seven to eight times the cost of actual scientific R&D. That is to maintain security, whether that means in construction of hard underground facilities, presumably, guns, media manipulation, who knows, that that's a way more expensive proposition than doing the actual science. The program is also about making money from this acquired technology. It's also about hiding most of this from the U.S. military itself, but using the U.S. military to protect their stuff. U.S. military, in my opinion, is basically a pawn in this game. Part three, how the UFO secrets have subverted our system. Well, I'm kind of segueing into that. I mean, think of it this way. If the UFOs turned out to be real and important to the classified world, would you need a classified infrastructure to deal with it? And I think the answer, obviously, is yes, especially so if you have hardware. I mean, it's one thing to hide a secret. Okay, we know that there's aliens here and we don't want the public to panic, whatever. That's one thing. But when you actually have hardware that you're trying to figure out and come up with ideas from, well, that, now you're talking about real money. And you need to create a classified infrastructure. We've now had 60-plus years of such an infrastructure. And what has happened, as I'm going to argue, is that that infrastructure has eroded and finally helped to kill the uh, traditional American system of governance. Let's rewind the clock 60 years and more and pretend that you're Harry Truman. So your top advisor comes up to you one day and says, sir, we have recovered technology apparently that is not of this civilization. So now you've got this bombshell dropped into your lap and you have to decide what you do with this information. So do you want to tell the world? Well, you know, it's quite possible that you might have an instinct or two to do that. Um, sure you might. On the other hand, you're in a fledgling Cold War. You have Soviet agents scattered throughout your national security apparatus who are trying to get your atomic secrets. You knew that. And certainly the United States was not willing to share atomic technology in 1947. That was a very big issue of the day. It's all but forgotten today. The United Nations was hammering at the door saying that, you know, those nukes are so important they have to be under international control, i.e. UN control. And America's answer was, sorry, no thanks. We'll, we'll hang on to it. That's okay. So America was not willing to share atomic technology. They're obviously not going to want to share something like alien hardware, right? No, I think what you might do if you were Harry Truman is you'd say, well, you'd gather together a top-level group of guys. You'd say, I want you to figure this out. What is this stuff? Can we do anything with it? Can we uh, keep it secure as much as possible? And by the way, who are these other people and do I have to worry about them? And then you might come up with some contingency plans as well in the event that you do have your hand forced and you do have to say something about it publicly. Would you create, in other words, a, an MJ-12 type of organization? I think the answer is yes. By the way, um, I'll take this opportunity to thank uh, Ruben Urarte for co-authoring a, a very new book dealing with a UFO crash that took place in 1955. Called, he's called it the 
the other Roswell. I, I just started reading it last night. The reason I'm mentioning this now is that um, it's my belief that his book shows very, very compelling argument as to why the official MJ-12 documents are fabricated, false. I think that's right. The MJ-12 documents, if you're familiar with them, um, detail two UFO crashes, one at Roswell and one in December 1950 along the Texas-Mexican border. As uh, Rubin's book shows very well, in 19, uh, the early 1980s when the MJ-12 documents came out, it was believed, generally speaking, that there was a crash at that place, at that location in 1950. That's turned out to be mistaken. The crash we now know did not occur there in 1950. It occurred there in 1955. That being so, that's a fatal flaw as I see it in the MJ-12 documents. And by the way, my argument about the MJ-12 documents is that... Um, they are a uh, concerted counterintelligence operation to, against two very important prongs of UFO research going on at that time. One was the acquiring of Freedom of Information Act documents that was giving a lot of grief to those people who had this secret. And the other prong was the research of crash retrievals. And what better way to throw cold water on the process than by creating fake documents designed to keep UFO researchers arguing themselves blue in each other's face for the next 20, 25 years. That is what I now believe has happened with the MJ-12 documents. Back to the quarry at hand here. Crash retrievals, what I think happened right early on is that they went private, so to speak. When I started out in this field, I was really, really occupied with the government cover-up. The government this, government that. I think what's happened is that it's more accurate to look at this as, uh, at least as accurate, to look at this as proprietary as it is classified. Because what happens is, if you, if you get these artifacts, if you're the army, let's say, now, you'd have to get it to private industry because where are you going to find the engineers and scientists and the personnel who are going to be in the best position, not only to study this, but replicate it in, in private industry, in your contractors? So at some point, you, the Army, you're going to go, or the Air Force, you're going to go to Lockheed, Raytheon, Boeing, and you're going to say, here, take a look at this and see what you can do with it. And they're going to say, sure, you know, great. Of course, you know, we're going to have some control over this too, and you're going to say, fine. I'm sure the lawyers covertly will hammer everything out to everyone's satisfaction. Companies get patent rights off their developments and so on. And, so on. and then you, when you retire, go to work as a senior VP for them. It's all nice and neat. This is a very attractive option, especially so when your own government is dominated by, by those people, leaders of industry and finance anyway. It's very, very convenient, very attractive. When your own advisors are dominated by the Council on Foreign Relations, which is made up of industry and finance as well, and they have dominated U.S. foreign policy since, well, the 1920s. And it helps with secrecy because now it's beyond government channels. It's beyond formal any kind of uh, pretense of public responsibility, it's now in private hands. As one uh, very, very senior uh, military person told me just a month or two ago, Navy, high-level guy, he said, look, you know, we've got good security, no question, but you know who's got better security is Lockheed and Boeing. He said, in his opinion, their security protocols 
far were superior to what, uh, what we have in the military. A little bit of an aside in terms of privatization, uh, it's been my feeling that we went through a silent, maybe not so silent, revolution. Everyone in this room lived through it, and maybe we weren't even aware of it. I look at it from 1984 to 1994, the death or decline of the nation state and the creation of a transnational era. If you look at the world in 1984 as a world with really without computers in a widespread basis, it was a world before Gorbachev and the Soviet Union. Um, you know, and then in 1994, we have the beginnings of a World Wide Web. We have the end of the Soviet Union. We have the beginnings of kind of the global era in which we live. Very dramatic changes indeed. Uh, as well as the passage of various laws like GATT and NAFTA and so on that created an international structure really facilitating what we now call globalization. By the year 2000, the 100 largest economies in the world, 51 of them were corporate. 49 were national. That, as much as anything, gives you some idea. I look at it as a hostile takeover of the world in which transnationals decide who governs, who serves on our courts, what laws are engaged, whether and what wars are going to be fought for what purpose. They have many and numerous powerful levers in which to uh, get their will done. The World Bank, the IMF, NAFTA, World Trade Organization, every government on this planet, very likely, I think under their thumb, CFR trilateral Bilderberger, who just met in Virginia. I don't know if they're still meeting. Federal Reserve Bank, yes. These are mechanisms by which corporate ownership, private ownership of the world is assured by these individuals. They have a goal. They probably have many goals. One, I think, is to privatize all resources so that they own everything, including you. Okay. So back to the, the program here. You've got to pay for it. How do we pay for it? Well, if you're going to pay for this program, you've got to hide the money. That's rule number one. So you have a black budget. Okay. And, you know, keep in mind that we didn't even have the phrase black budget in our lexicon until, I think, around 1990, 89, 90. In other words, it wasn't really widely discussed at all that there is this massive off-the-books type of government spending, military spending, that was of a massive amount and has always been underestimated in my view. In 1990, a book came out that estimated it as about $30 billion, and that was absolutely low for its, its age. Recently, there was an article, I think it was in the Times, or one of, one of the other propaganda rags that we have, that said it was, oh my God, $18 billion. I'm thinking, are you insane? $18 billion, that's chump change for these people. Okay, be that as it may, the money has to remain hidden, which means you have to divert these public funds covertly. Now, where do you get them from? Well, you don't get them from all legal sources, certainly. I mean, you can uh, steal from other federal agencies or cooperate with other federal agencies to divert their money. That happens. And then there's drug money and there's securities fraud money. What it, whatever it amounts to is a major subversion of our political system. Now, yesterday, James Fetzer talked about the missing money of the Pentagon. I was very glad to hear him do that. It's been an issue of mine as well. What actually happened is in July of 01, Rums, Donald Rumsfeld was, uh, you know, he was new. The Bush team was new in office, and they're talking to the um, House Appropriations Committee for the following year fiscal budget for the Pentagon. 
So Rumsfeld's talking about the mess that he has inherited at the Pentagon. And he says at one point, toward the end of his transcript, and you can find the transcript, it's, it's on the net. I've downloaded it. He says, the financial systems of the department are so snarled up that we can't account for t- some $2.6 trillion in transactions that exist, if that's believable, he says. Now, I mean, I'm staggered. The Pentagon budget for fiscal year 01 was $310 billion, about one-eighth the amount he's talking here. How do you lose track of eight times your annual budget? I'd like to know. If somebody knows this, please tell them. I'm serious. I want to know. I'm not an accountant. I, I admit I, I've got severe limitations when it comes to crunching these numbers. I don't know how you do it. Is it over a certain number of years, presumably? I, okay. Somehow something – and by the way, the house, which was like totally asleep at the wheel, uh, you know, surprise, Rumsfeld cracks some joke, and they all start chuckling, and that's the end. I'm thinking people. Okay. Along the same lines, there was a deputy inspector of the Pentagon, a gentleman, a person named General Robert Lieberman, who said $4.4 trillion in adjustments, uh, you know, what is that, to the Pentagon's books had to be cooked to compile the required financial statements. In other words, they just made stuff up. $1.1 trillion of that amount could not be supported by reliable information. That's a nice way to put it. So in other words, a trillion dollars was gone. Gone. And no one can be sure where it went. Okay. Catherine Austin Fitz is one of my heroes. Yes. I had the privilege of chatting with her a couple of times on the phone. I really, really admire what she did. Catherine was number two at HUD under George Bush Sr. And um, she's an accounting whiz, financial whiz. Uh, she did some work under the Clinton administration as well, I believe, and was offered and declined a position as governor of the Federal Reserve Board. Good for her. Uh, she's written about this a lot. She has a great article on the web. You can Google it called What's Up With the Black Budget. Go check it out. She talks about ET there, by the way. Interesting. Uh, she's written a great length in numerous articles about large banks and contractors diverting and laundering billions of dollars every day. Billions of dollars every day from public and undisclosed funds. Okay. Why do I even mention this? Well, because I, it's my feeling, strongly held feeling, that some of this money is going into a UFO technology program. That's why I'm mentioning it here. There's a very good article on special access programs by a fellow named Bill Sweetman. Bill Sweetman doesn't do UFOs. He's an aerospace kind of guy. And Jane's International Defense Review in 2000 wrote it good article, one of the few that you're going to find on special access programs anyway, called In Search of the Pentagon's Billion Dollar Hidden Budgets. So he's looking at these SAPs, and uh, at that point, he estimates that there's about 150 of them. Now, what is a special access program? Well, there's no oversight or basically no oversight, let's say. Congress has no control over them, typically no knowledge, no real knowledge. They have their own independent classification system. So if you're running a special access program within Pentagon, you, project manager, decide to, how, how you create the classification system for your program. The other thing Sweetman pointed out is that these SAPs appear to be dominated not by DOD personnel but by private contractors. 
They're the ones running it. The accountants and lawyers, the people representing the private firms, they essentially use the DOD liaison as a funding gatekeeper for the programs. But basically, the final word is the contractor, not the Pentagon people. Sweetman, for his part, was mystified as to how they got all their money. He had no idea, he said. Okay. Now, 150 back in 2000, how many hundreds, thousands have sprung up since? And by the way, um, there's much more than special access programs or, or unacknowledged special access programs out there. There are all kinds of programs like this. Within the Navy, a, a couple of years ago, the um, story came out about Alternative Compensatory and Control Measures, ACCMs. And these were, they're like SAPs, apparently. They sprung up within the Navy. Not only do they have no congressional oversight, but they had no Navy oversight. And the Secretary of the Navy in 0506 said, we've got to get control over this, because all of these black programs, I, I have no idea how many we have and what they're doing. Okay? It's secrecy out of control. Not just out of congressional control, but out of military control. Now, this gentleman, Vice Admiral Thomas Wilson, was mentioned in a recent book by Stephen Greer. Some of you know Stephen Greer is, writes, writes about this topic. Back in 1997, Greer had a meeting accompanied by astronaut Edgar Mitchell, who's pictured at the bottom there, Apollo 14. Um, and they met with this man, Thomas Wilson, who at the time was head of intelligence for the Joint Chiefs of Staff, designation J-2. Wilson later directed the DIA, and uh, he's now heavily ensconced as a senior exec in private industry for a company called ATK, which only describes itself as an advanced weapon and space systems company. Okay, cool. So in 97, Greer meets with Wilson, and he's talking about the black budget programs dealing with ET technology. And according to Greer, he says, look, here are some of the programs that I've learned about in my research. People have come to me, here's some of the program codes. I encourage you, sir, to check it out and gain control over it because there are rogue organizations that dominate them. These are not under formal, true U.S. public government control. And I urge you to take control over it. This is what Greer said. It so happens that before Greer's book came out, I got independent note, word of this myself from one of my sources, a very, very elite, well-positioned source, I should say, who uh, described this to me in great detail. Didn't give me Wilson's name at the time. So when Greer's book came out, I went to my own source and I said, so I assume it's Wilson. He said, yeah. I called Wilson myself. I found him and phoned him. I had to um, do it a little on the sly. I didn't want to tell him I'm a UFO guy. I didn't think he'd want to answer my call. So I said, well, I'm you know, <clears throat> doing historical research into your era, and I've read some of your interviews, which I did. I found some of his stuff on the web. I'd really like to interview you. So he says, sure, cool. So he calls, I call him. He gave me his phone number. And he sits down in his nice, easy chair. I could hear him just relaxing, preparing for a nice, leisurely interview. And, uh, and then I brought this whole thing up about Greer and Edgar Mitchell. And boy, did his tone change like that. He said, my, <clears throat> uh, my memory is foggy. He actually said that. I mean, that's, I almost was laughing. I thought, wow, you, you're going to actually use that line. My memory is foggy. Um, oh, and then I said, well, yes, as a matter of fact, uh, I spoke with Edgar Mitchell about this as well, and 
he also confirmed that you met. And he said, oh, well, yeah, I, I vaguely seem to recall such a meeting. So it was like, you know, when, um, when Khrushchev shot, they shot down the U-2 pilot Gary Powers. Khrushchev played this really great game dangling Eisenhower by this thread. He wouldn't, he wouldn't announce initially that they got the U-2 pilot. And Eisenhower is like by tiny little degrees inching his way toward, you know, <laughs> making an admission. I felt like that's what happened because uh, Wilson just had to be dragged into this conversation. But eventually he, he said, oh, yes, well, it's true. We did meet. We did talk about this. But, uh, you know, look, I didn't have time for this UFO stuff. I was a busy man. I was doing 16-hour days looking for weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. And uh, I didn't have time for this UFO stuff. He said I was amazed that a distinguished astronaut would be even interested in this thing. His voice got very high-pitched, and he said, look, I have another meeting to go to. Thank you. Goodbye. So, I mean, look, I couldn't expect Admiral Wilson just to give – what is he going to say? I mean, honestly. Uh, yes, as a matter of fact, I looked into this, and I was denied access, which, in fact, I, I know is what happened. Knocked on enough doors, finally told, sorry, sir, you do not have a need to know, which is what he was told, according to my source. He was denied access. How could he say this? He was head of intelligence for the Joint Chiefs. Yes, I was denied access on an ET-related technology program. Yeah, that'll go over well. Aside from losing all of his security clearances, that, would, that could, if played right, bring down the whole house of cards. But I had to ask. So toward the real black budget, <clears throat> we're talking about more than just classified spending. We're talking about theft, plain and simple. I think we have no idea of the true size of the black budget. It is enormous, and these guys can do whatever they want. They have no oversight, and they have essentially limitless funds to play with. Summarizing so far, I've still got about a half hour. I've tried to establish, at least briefly, the UFO reality in terms of documentary evidence. I've argued briefly that the UFO secrecy is one knife in the back of the American Republic. There's empire. That's been one. I was nearly going to take some time out and describe that, but time does not permit. Globalization, the whole development of what I often call a national security state. It's not all UFO related. There's a lot of brilliant people out on the web and out in writing books telling us why everything has gone wrong, and they make excellent points. They just often forget. They don't take seriously the reality of a UFO cover-up. They don't understand why this is important, why it matters, why it's not just silliness, and why it involves great amounts of money and subversion of our political system. And to grasp the large picture, I have been arguing for some time, and I will continue to argue, it is necessary to understand this also, especially when you look at the implications of just how big this is, and I will be discussing that in a moment. The spending on black UFO programs has prompted an end run around our official government. It has corroded our system so that we live in a world where we, we kind of live every day with a series of lies. You have official truth, the stuff you read in your school books, and then you have your actual truth or unofficial truth. Like others who have spoken here who lived in the world of academia for a while, I had to cleanse myself after I left that world. I really had to unlearn many things that I thought I knew. And I was, very, I was a great young scholar, 
I was very good at what I did. I took a lot of pride in being ahead of the curve. I thought, hey, I read Noam Chomsky. Well, great for me. And I, I admire, I don't want to knock him. I admire Noam Chomsky's work. I absolutely do. But everyone's got their limits. And there are limits to his work, significantly. I thought that I was at the, that's where you, you know, right at the front there. Well, no. And it's very difficult for someone who's over the age of 30. I think most people, they kind of shut down at 30. You're growing up, if you're, if you're intelligent, uh, at least, then you will question your beliefs through your teens and 20s when you're trying to construct a worldview for yourself. Yeah, okay, we all, hopefully we go through that, right? But then you turn 30 and you think, well, now I'm an adult, you think. Sometimes you're right, sometimes not. And you think, well, <clears throat> okay, now it's time to get my act together and figure out what do I believe. And what I, what I find in talking with people, once they hit their 30s, say, basically f- spend the rest of their life filling in the blanks of what they think they already know. And uh, I didn't get into this topic until I was well into my 30s. And uh, it was difficult. I, I will not lie to you. It was, I resisted trying to reinvent my worldview. And I continued to resist every time I would encounter some other kind of out there idea until I looked into it and thought, yeah, this looks like there's something there. It's hard to do. We all, I think everybody in this room is familiar with this process or you wouldn't be here. It's just hard work. What has happened independent prior to 9-11 is that we had the development of what I often have called invisible fascism. Just because it's invisible doesn't make it any less profound. It's invisible because of two things. One is that it's not like, it's not 1935, where you got the stormtroopers doing the Zeke Heils and Ein Reich, Ein Volk, Ein Reich, Ein Führer. We don't get that quite. Okay. It's not quite in our face. Because we have a system in which we're told we have freedom. And we want to believe that. So there's this charade going on in which we have this belief that, you know, well, we can't be fascists. That's Hitler. That's Mussolini. It's also invisible because mainstream media, which is an intimate part of the problem, will not discuss this. They are part of it. They won't get into it. Most people don't see it, but they feel it. They feel, they know in their heart there's something desperately wrong with this country. But they lack the conceptual tools in most cases to figure out what is actually going on. Most people, I mean, they haven't spent years and years and years looking into this. They don't have time. They work 40, 50 hour weeks, whatever they do. They got to raise families. They got, they have a life. It's difficult. And so they can't see it, but it's there. I think those people creating this fascist state learn that lesson very well. Make it, but don't declare it openly. However, as great of a change as we went through from the 1940s to, through the 1990s, we had this open system of at least supposedly a free democratic electoral, okay. When in fact the reality behind the scenes was very, very different. I believe that at a certain point the disconnect between 
above and below became so great, so profound, that it became necessary, just like you have corrections, as they call it, to the stock market. We had a correction to the political market, and that was the events of September 11, 2001. Elites, those people who run this, decided they needed to transform the structure of law in the United States to put into place the mechanisms by which to create a global police state. And that is what 9-11 was. It was our Reichstag fire. 1933, Hitler comes into power. He's not dictator yet. He's chancellor. It's like prime minister. He's leading a coalition. It's part of what is formally a parliamentary system of government. Well, a month and a half later, the German parliament, the Reichstag, was ablaze, set in flames. It was like their 9-11. Terrorism, in this case, the communists. We know with historical virtual certainty that the Nazis planned it and they did it. We know pretty much the people involved in planning it and doing it. And I say virtual certainty because even now, 75 whatever years later, historians will tell you they're not 100% sure. They're pretty sure. Why are they not 100% sure? Because the Nazis were really, really good at covering their tracks. They kept control of the process and made it very difficult to prove that they didn't do it. Okay, that's life. Things don't come into neat little packages. And because of that event, in March of 1933, the Reichstag passed what became known as the Enabling Act, which gave Hitler emergency powers, which happened to last for 12 years. That was the foundation for the Third Reich. No need to explain that analogy. I was entranced by listening to Jim Fetzer yesterday. There is no way that I would want to try to recreate his argument on all of the BS concerned with the official version of 9-11. He went through it better than I ever could. But let me review a couple of things here. We are told to believe. I mean, just think. Let us use our common sense. Step back 10 steps and ask yourself what you're expected to believe happened. Total of 266 people, including flight crews, on four specific flights at three airports, 19 Arabs. These 19 Arabs, without guns, but they got their box cutter nines, overpower eight pilots and prevent them from transmitting the hijacker codes, which is right there. They take over the planes successfully every time. Well, sort of successful in Pennsylvania, let's say, but okay. And they hit their targets. Bam! That's what we're supposed to believe. Now, <clears throat> you know, you could make a map of like five, probably 500 inconsistencies and problems with the official version of 9-11 and throw a dart on the board and any one of those <laughs> problems is difficult. They're real problems. One, where is the video showing these guys getting on the plane? There isn't any that's ever become available. I've never seen it, neither of you. There's no body of any of the passengers ever recovered, or their luggage, or debris proven to have come from any of those aircraft that was recovered from any of the crash sites. 
well, Mohammed Atta's uh, passport, I guess, in the rubble of the Trade Center. Who the hell believes this stuff? God. No relatives received any remains of the victims. Ellen Mariani, some of many of you know her name, spent five years looking for relatives of 64 people on Flight 175's passenger list. She never found anybody. United and American Airlines never filed a loss claim with their insurance carriers on any of those flights. Why did George Bush remain at a meaningless photo op when he claimed that he was informed that the country was under a terrorist attack? Why did the Secret Service not try to take him out of there? a place that had been known where he was going to be for four days prior. Why? That, you know, this is not like talking about the, the speed of fall of the, of the trade center. This is a question that you would think a journalist would ask. It's a safer question. Rudy Giuliani said, at least on one occasion, he claimed that someone told him that the trade center was about to collapse. Now, when I read this, how, how did this person know that? Who was this guy who called Rudy Giuliani? Why did Giuliani allow FEMA to take all the steel immediately and get it out of this country? The greatest crime on American soil, no investigation, no open investigation. Why did NORAD claim that they didn't scramble any jets initially? And then nearly a week goes by and they say, oh, well, <clears throat> yeah, we, we did. We scrambled some jets. Why this discrepancy? Why would they not know? And how could World Trade Center building number seven collapse as it did? It's the simplest question in the world. Nothing hit it. What hit this thing? Fetzer pointed this out far better than I did. I'm just raising it here. There's no need for me truly a novice on 9-11. I mean, I admit this. I'm a dilettante. I look into it. Uh, I've held opinions on 9-11 and some of the technical things that I probably have been wrong at various times. It's not necessary. To be honest with you, if you're wrong about one or two things, as I, I've come to feel, it's, it's not the biggest thing in the world. The big thing is that the big picture, as we are told, is wrong. I wasn't there to plan it. So there's lots of things I'm not going to know, and nor will you. We weren't part of that little club. So we're not going to know. So let me come back to a larger analysis. I still have about uh, 15 minutes, looks like. UFO conspiracy and 9-11 were both instrumental in enabling an overthrow of our traditional political system. The UFO cover-up, let me go back to that, one of the killers of the American public has slowly created a new system of governance. I think of 9-11 as a debutante's coming out party. It's the formalization for revolution. It's the justification, the legitimizing, to use that word in a kind of perverse sense, of this revolution from above. It is, as my very good friend Richard Souter 
was chatting with me on the phone the other day. Richard Souter writes about underground bases and facilities. It's very good. It is the boil that needs to be lanced if we are to avoid descent into true and formal fascism. This is the issue that must be dealt with today, tomorrow, next week, until it's done and resolved. By the way, I argued in a recent article on my website, keyholepublishing.com, if you're interested, to uh, watch for another 9-11 before the 2008 election. It's my belief that that's really a possibility. And uh, my thoughts on this were sparked by the forced resignation a few weeks ago of uh, Admiral William Fallon from CENTCOM, Central Command, which managed Middle Eastern military policy. Uh, Fallon was... uh, publicly known as really the last man standing up to President Bush on the issue of Iran and had said, not on my watch, that is not on my watch, are we going into Iran? Now, the people running policy around Bush are either certifiably insane or simply the greatest criminals ever to take possession of the White House. I think the latter. They want this war, even though, as Fallon pointed out, we don't have the money, we don't have the people. We have a military that is breaking, as has been pointed out here by other speakers more eloquent than myself, a military that is breaking and in many ways broken. We cannot go into Iran. First of all, there's no justification, but one will be created. And my fear is that there will be another false flag operation, as was 9-11, that will be attempting, there will be an attempt to pin this on Iran. And with that, it would not shock me to see a need to suspend, temporarily of course, the election. Why? Go back to 2004. I'm sure some of you remember this. June of 04, some stories came out, leaked out about <clears throat> discussions to possibly, in the event of an emergency, Uh, delay the 2004 elections. I'm sure some of you remember this. Yeah. Well, this is a little trial balloon floated out there, and the normally comatose U.S. media, for some reason, woke up with a collective WTF, and uh, Condoleezza Rice backed away rapidly and said, oh, no, 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 we're not, you know, we're not planning to do that. So they just rig the election instead. Okay, well, good for them. So that's two elections in a row that you rig, but you can't, yes, go, clap. You can't rig elections indefinitely without some people thinking, hey, wait a minute. So what I think could happen is that there will be an emergency that is declared, and um, I hope that I'm wrong. I would love to be wrong on this. Now, it's possible also that an emergency could happen if, if it's rigged and McCain goes in. He's very amenable to a lot of this, of course. Um, that, uh, that it'll happen after his election. And you know what? If Obama goes in, a lot of people are Obama fans, and he talks a great game. But just because you could be the first black president doesn't mean you, could be the first, you can't be the first fascist president either. Just because you're black, you can still be fascist. And just because you talk a great game doesn't mean that you can't be fascist or if you're the first woman president. Same thing. 
It can still happen. These are possibilities. Getting close to wrapping up here. The greatest revolution is that of truth. In a world of lies, truth is revolutionary. Regarding 9-11 truth, you know, I've asked myself, how will it be possible? I mean, really, ask yourself this, too, to get an official, open recognition that 9-11 was an inside job. Some have said it never happened. It may never happen. Because we're now seven years into this world, into this twisted world that we live in. Everything that has happened since that day has hinged on that day. We're fighting two wars that are bankrupting the United States, among other things, enriching certain groups, certainly. They're not going to want to revisit this. You have a mainstream media network that is as implicit, that is complicit, excuse me, as any other major group. And for them to revisit this, that's, that's really going to be, you know, that's going to be difficult. You have a political establishment that if this comes out, there are going to be questions to be asked. What did you know? What did you know? What did you know? Because we're, we all know that there are people on the inside. They know all about this. There will be hell to pay. And where we would come out at the end of this, who knows? This is bigger than any event in American history. With one exception, possibly, and that is the UFO cover-up, which I'm going to talk about in a moment. To deal with 9-11. My God, I cannot, I can't see where we would come out at the end of this. On the other hand, I can't see for how long the lies will be able to dominate. We are living through an era in which, in the last 15 or so years, we've developed this thing called the Internet, a rather unforeseen development prior to that, has revolutionized our world. What other revolutions await us in the next decade or two? We have a very difficult time envisioning what our world will look like, other than the fact that the rate of change that we're going through is absolutely unprecedented in the history of our civilization. That's all we know. And so for us to think that time is going to stand still, social mores and attitudes and beliefs are going to stand still, well, that's just foolishness. Something's got to give. And when it does, the problem that I have is envisioning how anyone is going to be ready for it. But it's going to happen nonetheless. Okay. UFO truth. You go to a UFO conference, and the big thing people talk about is how can we get <laughs> how can we get the president to make an announcement? I'm I'm serious. People, you know, they want this. I've had long, long arguments with my very good friend Stephen Bassett about this matter. He wants disclosure, and he wants it done by you know the official powers that be. Well, okay. Look, I. I have supported this effort for a long time now, and I will continue. I believe, let's, okay, let's try to do that. Um, but what happened if the president were to make an announcement? For example, well, if, if this president made the announcement, then I would know that the last 15 years of my life were total nonsense and wrong, and I would get out of the field. 
Because I know if he's telling me that there are aliens here, then I, I, right, right, I would probably say that. But let's say, you know, that it comes out. And, and it could come out. The same problem exists with 9-11. You have the same forces that absolutely will not be able to handle this when it comes out. And yet it will come out nonetheless. If and when it does, well, there's some unpleasant questions. Well, what if they, whoever they are, are abducting us? I mean, after all, if you admit that, you know, <clears throat> if the president says, well, it's come to my attention, UFOs are real, apparently, and some of them are extraterrestrial, you can't just say, good night, I'm going on vacation. <laughs> Although this guy might want to, but, you know, you can't, really. Because there's going to be a few follow-up questions. What if we learn that there's different factions of them? What if they don't all get along? What if there was a deal at some point in our past between our elites and some of them, like, like the Western nations might make with a third world nation? There's been a lot of talk that that was the case. What if it's true? What if they're interested in the population growth on this planet? Do we, I mean, after all, we tripled our global population in the last hundred years. What if we learn that our militaries and these other beings have been engaged in a long-standing Cold War, as I often believe when I look at the documentary evidence? What if we learn that some of them look like us and live among us? That's not as funny as it might sound. I think there's evidence that there are what are known as transgenic beings, hybrids created by them. I didn't get into any of that with you here, but I think that it's possibly true. What if some of them have positions of influence in our society? What if they do? After all, if I were an alien, I'd be looking at this society thinking, they've come a long way in a hundred years. They might be a royal pain in the neck in another hundred years. I might want to monitor them carefully. I might want to manipulate them. I might want to get my hooks into them now. It's easy. Let's just do it. Why not? What if they created us? I don't know. Let's come down to some more practical problems in the event of such an announcement. How do you, if you're in charge of the secret, how do you undo this lie? Gorbachev came into power in 1985, and he's talking about glasnost and perestroika, which sounded great. Six years later, there's no Soviet Union. And the reason is that the process of reform spiraled out of his control. And suddenly, you're talking about openness, and suddenly people in Azerbaijan say, hey, great, well, we don't want to be in your country or the Baltic states said, oh, you took us over in 1940. Remember that? We're, we're out of here. Gorbachev at first said, no, 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 I didn't mean that. Well, a little late. One of the last, in the final year of Gorbachev's leadership, that's, that was a very big issue, as some of you recall. If this comes out, you're going to see a massive change in our political dynamic. And you're going to have very likely, we're going to become like the third world nations did, in which you have splits between the modernizers and the traditionalists. Will there be social panic? Will there be vigilantism, riots, armed revolt? I think the answer is yes. Economic financial disruption, one example out of many. What if, what if it's true and they have a very good replacement for petroleum? Well, that would be kind of nice in the long run. After all, it pollutes and does all these bad things. Of course, in the short run, you have financial interests that would their stock value would plummet. I don't think they'd be too happy about that. What if the aliens have a better version of our steel or any number of other industries that would become obsolete 
In the short term, it would cause economic panic, I think. Uh, what if we do get free energy? Well, that's also kind of cool. I'd like to be able to heat my house for the rest of my life for free. But, of course, what if I can also make a really nifty bomb in an uncontrolled way? Uh, it might be a problem. What happens when we learn about the extent of the black budget covert world that has managed this problem for so many years? The factions that have developed within that world, and there are factions that have developed in that world, they're not all evil, evil, wicked, horrible people. Some of them are good people. And I know that some of them believe in coming out with the truth on this, but there are factions that absolutely no way know how we're going to let that happen. That's going to be a mess to deal with when it comes out. I spoke to one gentleman who told me that on a periodic basis this issue is discussed at high levels. He himself said he was on a subcommittee at one point in the 90s to discuss the problems of disclosing this reality. He was on a subcommittee, he said, that dealt with legal issues. Interesting, because he wasn't a lawyer, he was a scientist. Nevertheless, one problem was lawsuits. Sounds so pedestrian when we're talking about other species, right? But it's an issue. If I'm a con defense contractor and I have not had access to this exotic technology and I lose out on contract after contract because my competitor did, I might be instituting a lawsuit. Sure. And then what about legal action against the secret keepers themselves? I guarantee you these people want legal protection before they go public with any of this stuff because there's going to be a lot of angry people. Will disclosure force elites into thinking they need to institute more repressive measures? That is an absolute top-notch question we have to consider. I'm just about done here. As difficult as it will be to deal with any of these issues, I think that there is no question that the truth is going to come out. A, I don't know the, I don't know the exact details of how it will happen. I suspect, though, that because of the rate of change in our own society, something will happen to force somebody's hand. This is what I think. I think it will be unexpected. I think it will be sudden. And I think that most people are not going to be ready to handle it. We all have family. You all know what I mean. There are most, many, many, many people, they're not, they don't, they're not ready. And that's just people. What about institutions? They're really not going to be ready. And I think very likely they're never going to be ready. That won't stop this from happening. We have had very, very, very unhealthy consequences from secrecy. A sprawling secrecy industry that envelops our entire society. Up is down, black is white. We live with lies so often. We're like a drug addict who's, you know, his family is trying to do an intervention. You got a problem, you got a problem. No, I don't have a problem, go to hell. That's America. We call ourselves Luke Skywalker when we're much more like Darth Vader. And uh, that's a difficult truth to come to. But the change is happening too fast. It will happen. It's going to be a firestorm politically. 9-11, UFO, and there's so much more 
You know, in the 1970s, after Watergate, it was, as I kind of indicated, it was the one moment in American history where we, Congress really started looking at the intelligence community and all the nasty things they were doing. MKUltra, COINTELPRO, the uh, Kennedy assassinations, Martin Luther King assassination. They haven't done this ever since. It was the one moment. They basically opened the door a crack, saw a couple of things, slammed that door, and ran for the hills. That's what they did. But if one of these big issues comes out, this is much bigger. And it will blow the roof potentially sky high. And there is no way of knowing where we're going to come out except in something totally, totally different. It will be very difficult to deal with, but as I see it, there's really no... I don't see it not happening. It will come out. When is the issue? When is the issue? And we have to keep working for it. There is no other choice for people like us. When you become baptized into this field, when you learn certain truths, we take on an obligation not to forget those truths and to speak the truth at every opportunity. Thank you. Thank you very much. I will be at my table. I have a few copies of my book, UFOs and the National Security State. You can write to me, uh, go to my website, keyholepublishing.com, and send me an email. I'll see you all in a few minutes if you'd like to come to my table. Thank you.